You ever been on a nature hike in the country? Maybe hiking in the Adirondacks if you're Paul. And you see an unmarked trail off to the right. And you wonder, where does this trail lead? Maybe, perhaps, you're more the adventurous type on a motorcycle. Roland's not here this morning, but driving along through the mountains and you pass a small windy road that looks interesting and you just got to go check it out. And as you check out that trail or you go down that side road, you find that it leads to an amazing scenic spot of nature. Maybe a a high mountain cliff overlooking a a beautiful valley or maybe a, a waterfall flowing down from a busy brook. As your heart swells with joy and praise to your creator, you know it was worth it to take that side road for a minute. Your curiosity paid off. This morning... I want to take you on a side trail like that. We just finished up almost three months in Jesus' teaching here in the upper room. I don't know if that strikes you as as amazing. I can't believe that we just spent almost three months in John 13 to 16. We have learned a lot from Jesus here in the Upper Room Discourse. We've worked section by section through Jesus' teaching, learning from Jesus each of the lessons that he has for us along the way, step by step through John 13 to 16. I do think that these have been weeks well spent. It has been worth it to listen to the teaching of our Savior for these weeks. But sometimes, have you ever noticed how it's not always necessarily so much what you say, but it's how you say it. Have you found that to be true? Not just what you say, but the way that you say it. As I was studying for last week's sermon, I stumbled upon a question, upon an unmarked trail. This morning, I'm going to take you down this trail because what I found there at the end stirred my soul, and I hope it stirs yours as well. Open with me to John 16. Last week, our text that we've finished was the last verse was our verse of the month, John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Now what stood out to me as I was studying was that virtue, peace. Jesus is working for our peace. And that idea sounded familiar it occurred to me that there are actually a lot of virtues here in the Upper Room Discourse. It seems like Jesus mentions virtue all the time here in the Upper Room. So I went back to the beginning of the Upper Room Discourse, and verse by verse, I I went through and I jotted down all of the virtues that Jesus mentions in this Upper Room Discourse, all the virtues that Jesus wants us to have. So, for instance, back in chapter 14 and verse 29, Jesus mentions the virtue of belief, believing. In John 14, 29, Jesus says, Now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. Jesus mentions the virtue of joy in chapter 15 and verse 11. John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you that, your, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He mentions the virtue of love just a few verses later in verse number 17 of chapter 15. These things I command you so that you will love one another. 
He mentions the virtue of perseverance in chapter 16 and verse number 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. He mentions the virtue of remembrance in verse number 4 of chapter 16. I've said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. And finally, the, the verse that got me meandering down this trail in the first place, we return to the virtue of peace in 1633. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. As I wrote down each of these virtues and I looked at them, I wondered, what is Jesus doing to promote these virtues in my heart. This was part of what kind of got my attention at the beginning of this trail. Jesus is doing something to promote virtue in my life. What is Jesus doing? Well, you probably noticed as I read through those verses just now exactly what I noticed in those verses. I have told you. I said these things to you. These things I have spoken to you. These things I command you. I have said all these things to you. I have said these things to you. And again, I have said these things to you. Each and every virtue is stirred up in you by the voice of Jesus. So I wrote all this out in a little chart so that I could look at it because I'm kind of a visual charty sort of person. I'm not the king of Excel, but I come close. Maybe the, the joker of Excel. So I wrote it all out on a chart so I could see it. And as I'm looking at it there, I realized there's more to this chart than just Jesus speaking and then a virtue. Each and every one of these verses follows exactly the same grammatical structure. And no other verses in the upper room discourse follow exactly this pattern. The structure is Jesus speaks in order that you may be virtuous. So how does Jesus work for your virtue? He speaks. And he doesn't just speak, he speaks to you. His words to you produce virtue. So, Although we've already considered each one of these verses in their individual contexts, Jesus clearly intends for you and I to see the connection between all of these verses and realize that Jesus is teaching us something very important about what he is doing in us as Christians. So this morning, we're going to go back and we're going to consider these six virtues that Jesus is working in us. And I trust that as we walk down this trail this morning, we will not only grow in our appreciation for the beauty of the text and the care of the one who spoke these words to us, but I trust that we will actually grow in these virtues because we have heard the word of Jesus. It is when we listen to the voice of Jesus that we grow in character. So listen to Jesus' voice this morning and let his words change your heart. Consider, first of all, that Jesus speaks for our belief. Chapter 14 and verse 29 once more. John 14, 29. 
Now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. In the context, Jesus is actually talking about the, the peace that he is leaving with his disciples. I leave you my peace, he says. He knows the disciples are troubled. He knows that they are afraid. And rather than mourning, rather than just feeling bad about their loss, Jesus wants his disciples to have peace. So Jesus reminds his disciples that he is, in fact, going to the Father. He's not just dying. He is going to ascend to the Father. It is this reminder that Jesus gives them Before these events take place, he says, so that when it does take place, you may believe. You know the situation. It's part of our gospel message. When Jesus dies, when Jesus dies, his disciples are tempted to think that it's over and all of their messianic hopes have died with Jesus. They may be tempted to stop believing that Jesus is the Messiah. They may be tempted to think that Jesus has failed. But Jesus speaks a promise to his disciples in this moment. He says, I am going to the Father. Jesus intends to fuel the belief of his disciples. The promise of Jesus, spoken by Jesus, motivates belief in Jesus. If we could take one more step back and place this virtue of belief in the larger context of the whole Gospel of John, you'll remember that John has been writing for our belief all along. He told us in chapter 20 and verse number 31, that theme verse for the whole book of John. He wrote this Gospel, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the theme verse for the whole book. Back at the beginning, in John chapter 1, in that prosaic prologue, John wrote that to all who do receive him, to those who believe on his name, he gave the right to become sons of God. So right off the bat, in the Gospel of John, we're being given this promise. The promise of becoming children of God if we would believe, believe in Jesus. Notice the importance of the word of Jesus to the belief of the disciples in John chapter 2 and verse 22. When therefore he he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The disciples believed the scripture and they believed the word that Jesus had spoken. Do you see the importance of the spoken word of Jesus for your belief? While Judas was still in the upper room, Jesus foretold his betrayal. In John chapter 13 and verse number 19, Jesus says, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Here's the point that I want us to see. Our belief in Jesus does not depend on experience. Jesus does not grow your faith by signs and visions and wonders. Jesus speaks. Jesus promises. 
and you are called to respond to Jesus' words by belief. Jesus' word to you is enough to sustain your believing. This is the ordinate, the proper response to the word of Jesus. Believe. This is the starting place for your relationship with Jesus. Every one of the virtues that we are about to study follows from this first virtue of believing. Hear the voice of Jesus. Hear the promise of Jesus and believe. This means, practically speaking, if you find yourself shaking in your belief on Thursday morning because you wake up and the difficulties of life are just overwhelming your soul, or you wake up on Friday morning and you find yourself disinterested and entirely unmoved by the promises of Jesus because life is distracting and things are just busy, return to Scripture. Return to Jesus' words. Incline your ear to the voice of your Savior as he speaks to you through his word. You persevere in your believing as you listen to Jesus speaking to you. His word will sustain your belief. So listen to his word. But there's other virtues. We must continue down this trail. If you believe in Jesus, Jesus is also working for your joy. Again, John 15 and verse 11. These things I have spoken to you. You see our, our pattern here. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is perhaps a surprising word in its context because in John chapter 15 and, and verse 11, Jesus has been describing God's goal for the branches to abide in the vine. You remember that? The illustration of the vine and the branches? God wants those branches to bear fruit as they abide in Jesus' love. So we abide in Jesus' love and we bear fruit by keeping Jesus' commandments. Trouble is, a lot of times when we hear people giving us commands and telling us what to do, we start to get a bit grumpy, don't we? We can feel like commands are oppressive and constricting. We have trouble rejoicing when we hear commands. In fact, it may not even be immediately obvious to us that there is a relationship between Jesus commanding and us being joyful. We may not see how those things actually fit together. Have you ever thought that the appropriate response to a command is joy? How many cadets rejoice in the commands of their drill sergeants? And yet Jesus is here telling us that he has spoken to us. Specifically, he has spoken commands to us that his joy might be in us and that our joy might be full. And so you ask, how does that work? What does this mean? Well, first of all, we need to see that Jesus is himself an example for us in this moment. John 15, 10, the first right before this. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Notice this, just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. So Jesus is holding himself out as an example of the virtue of love. Specifically, 
He obeys the Father for love. Jesus keeps the Father's commands and abides in the Father's love. So, since that's what he does, that's what you're supposed to do. Jesus speaks his commands to you, and you abide in Jesus' love. Then Jesus says that he speaks these things in order that his joy might be in you, not his love, his joy might be in you, and that your joy might be full. So Jesus has abounding joy as he keeps the commands of the Father. Jesus wants you to have that same abounding joy as you keep his commands. All of this reminds me a lot of the words of the author of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 1 to 2, the author of Hebrews, not Paul, <laughs> says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now listen to this. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus obeyed the Father to the point of the cross for the joy that was set before him. What was the source of Jesus' joy? Why was Jesus content? It brought Jesus joy to fulfill the Father's will. It brought Jesus joy to know that God had spoken to him and Jesus could now obey. There's certainly more to say about that text, but there's not less to say. It brought Jesus joy to glorify God through obedience. Now, we don't even have to actually run to the book of Hebrews, we actually see this right here in the Gospel of John. Do you remember back earlier when John the Baptist is describing himself as the bridegroom? And he says in John chapter 3, uh, the one having, uh, uh, verse number 28, 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. And the Messiah came. And John the Baptist's job was finished. He had obeyed the command that he had had to prepare the way, and his joy was full. He rejoiced greatly. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has spoken to us. And when we hear the voice of Jesus, we rejoice. When we hear the commands of Jesus, we obey not out of a sense of, of glum, forced compliance. I've got to do it again. No, no, no. Jesus tells us his commands are not wearisome. You remember? We get to obey our Jesus. We get to make the words of Jesus look valuable to the people around us by glorifying him and obeying him. And that brings us joy. We find joy in hearing the words of Jesus and putting the glory of those words on display. You know, there may be times in our lives when our hearts do not rejoice at the words of Jesus. It's possible that we don't respond with joy. And we don't become joyful by 
putting on a, a peppy playlist on Spotify and being happy or something like that. That's not how it works. No, we cultivate this affection of joy in our souls by listening more to the voice of Jesus and choosing to trust the goodness of that voice. We listen to the voice of Jesus in Scripture and we choose to find that voice better and more valuable than the voices that are around us. We listen to the voice of Jesus and we believe that His promises and His instructions to us are right and good for His glory and our thriving. That's how our joy is full. There's a third virtue here in the upper room that Jesus is working for our souls, and it is the, the virtue of love. In John 15, in verse number 17, Jesus says, These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Now, the interesting thing about this word from Jesus is that actually in, in the context, in John 15, verses 12 to 17, the, 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 the place where he says this, Jesus actually doesn't command anything. He tells us a lot of things about our relationship with him, but he actually doesn't command anything in, in these words. So it's a little bit surprising then to hear him tell us several things about our relationship with him and then say, these things I command you so that you love one another. But it's interesting because actually throughout John 15, from John 15, 1 all the way here to John 15, 17, Jesus is teaching us about our relationship with him. Again, this is the vine and the branches. In John 15, 1 to 11, we abide in Jesus. And we abide, when we abide in Jesus, we bear fruit in Jesus. So then in John 15, 12 to 17, this is that portion of scripture where Jesus elevates us. You remember this from the level of servants to the level of friends? And as his friends, we demonstrate our love for him through our obedience. So the picture then that we get of from John 15 is that our love for one another hinges on our relationship with God. You can't love one another if you don't love and obey Jesus. That's what we see here in John 15. And you know, it's important to hear Jesus' word to us at this point because it's actually quite contrary to the message of love that we have from the world around us today. The world around us values love. We hear about love all the time in all the pop songs. But what does love for one another look like according to the world? Well, according to the world, it looks like affirming one another, sin and all. It looks like going on with whatever delusion you may have of yourself. It certainly has nothing to do with a relationship with God. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, these things I command you so that you will love one another. It's when you are properly related to God that you can truly love one another. So, do, do you sense that your love for your brothers and sisters is cold? Do, do you sense that you do not treat your brothers and sisters in a way that honors Christ? Do you hear criticism or distrust in your voice 
in reference to your brothers and sisters? Do you hear disdain and slander in your words about your brothers and sisters? Consider your love for God. Consider your obedience to God. Your love for your brothers and sisters is simply the overflow, the outpouring, the outcome of your love for God. Jesus' words, Jesus' instruction for you, to you, is sufficient to sustain your love for your brothers. So listen to Jesus' words. Listen to Jesus' commands. And as you obey him, as you relate properly with him, let your loving obedience for God spill over into your love for one another. As John put it in his first epistle, this is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So listen to Jesus' word and love one another. So Jesus speaks so that we would believe in him. Jesus' word is sufficient to sustain our belief. Not only that, Jesus speaks so that we would have his joy. We listen to Jesus' words. We believe in his words and we have abundant joy in Christ. And we listen to Jesus' word and so we, we love one another. Faith, joy, and love. Jesus is working for these virtues in our soul. But he's working for a fourth virtue. In John chapter 16 and verse number 1, Jesus says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Jesus is working for you the virtue of perseverance. Now this is particularly powerful, and it, honestly, it's my desire that this word serves to anchor your soul in the love of Christ for you and your love for him. This is a, one of those long-term anchors. Jesus is working to keep you from falling away. You remember back in John chapter 6, Jesus spoke some hard words. And some of his disciples grumbled about those words. They complained about how hard it was to receive those words. And, and so what they do? They stopped following him. You remember that? This is that word. This is what Jesus is talking about. In our modern lingo, we might speak of apostasy, falling away, or even really modern, deconstruction. Jesus says that his word is sufficient to keep us from apostasy and deconstruction. Do you believe that? You see, whether or not you believe that has everything to do with whether or not you will keep yourself in the love of God. The day you stop believing his word, the day that you stop believing that what Jesus says is sinful is sinful, the day you stop believing that what Jesus says is true is actually true, that is the day that your heart begins to grow cold and you begin to fall away. Jesus promises you that his word is sufficient to keep you from that day. Do you believe that? Do you hear the power in that promise? Do you hear the, the truth claims in that promise? 
See, I, I don't know about you, but when I think about my heart, when I think about what it looks like for Brandon to deconstruct and to fall away, I know some of the things that would cause me to stop believing. I know there could be a failure in my heart, a failure to believe in the sinfulness of sin. There could be a desire in my heart to justify my sinful behavior by believing Jesus is just a little out of step with what he teaches about sin. I also know that if the truth claims of Scripture were ever proven themselves to be unreliable, some aspect of the historicity of the Bible proves untrue, my faith would be deeply shaken to the point of falling away. Christianity's truth claims depend on their truthfulness all the way down. And if scripture is proven to be as unreliable as, for example, the Book of Mormon or the Quran, then my faith would fall away. So when I hear Jesus promise me in this text that his word is sufficient to keep me from that day of apostasy and deconstruction, I hear a massive promise. I hear a powerful promise. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus will keep you. Now understand, this is not a passive let go and let God kind of promise. Jesus' word is sufficient to keep you from that day of apostasy, so you must abide in his word. The virtue of perseverance is a virtue. It's not only something that's done to you, it is something that you are doing. You must abide. To put it another way, perseverance is not like swimming, swinging back in a hammock, passively letting God sustain you in his arms or something like that. No, it's actually a consistent daily walking towards Jesus. Every day, listening to his voice. Every day, responding to his voice in faith. Faith that is renewed every morning as his mercy is new every morning. You must keep yourself. But you do not keep yourself independently. You keep yourself dependently. He is the vine. You are the branch. Jesus keeps you. He will keep you in himself. His word is sufficient to keep you. Jesus' word is sufficient to keep you from falling away. So believe that promise. Keep listening to that word. There's a fifth virtue, and it's closely tied up with that fourth. John 16, 4, just a couple verses later. I have said these things to you, that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This is the virtue of remembrance. Now, Pastor, you're really stretching for this one. You ever heard those sermons where the pastor is just really reaching to make his point? You're like, that's not what it's saying. You heard that before? None of you? I've heard it once or twice in my life. Well, that's, I'm not stretching it. These are the words of Jesus. We're just following the trail. This, is, this statement is exactly like all of the other ones and unlike any other verses in this text. So Jesus must be saying something here, right? 
What is he getting at? Remembrance as a virtue. Well, let's give Jesus the benefit of the doubt and let's think about what he means just a little bit. And again, what Jesus means, I have said these things to you, that when the hour comes, you may remember this is closely tied with that promise in 16.1. I say these things to keep you from falling away. If it's true in 16.1 that Jesus', Jesus word is sufficient to keep you from falling away, then 16.4, Jesus' promise is the how of 16.1. In other words, if you are to persevere in suffering, if you are to abide and persevere despite the severe oppression in this world, Jesus' word is sufficient to keep you. And you must remember his word to you. He's spoken to you, and you must remember his words if they are to keep you. Jesus speaks his words to you. He speaks his promises to you so that you might remember those promises. There's so many practical applications of this virtue. This virtue of remembrance plays itself out in your life in the songs that you sing as you're driving down the road. The thoughts that you think as you're driving down the road with no music playing. The books that you read, the Bible verses that you memorize. How are you going to know the words of Jesus to you if you do not immerse yourself in those words? What is it going to matter if Jesus speaks a million words of promise to you and you can't remember one of them? Over and over and over in the Psalms, we find the psalmist delighting in the word of God meditating on the word of God, finding strength and consolation in the word of God. Your remembering those words of Jesus is a virtue and it is a discipline. Jesus keeps you by his word as you remember those words that he has spoken to you. And you know, Jesus creates in your heart a love for those words It's part of our communion with Christ, part of this new life that the Spirit has given you in your soul. You delight in the words of Christ. Before you were saved, that wasn't true. This is a new affection that God has given you. So if you find your heart growing cold and complacent to the Word of God, to the memorization of the Word of God, to the meditation of the Word of God, to the reading of the Word of God, if you find that you don't prioritize daily meditation on the word of Jesus, watch out. That is a sign not of an abiding soul. That is a sign of a drifting soul. Jesus speaks to you so that you might remember his word. And in remembering his word, you might persevere in his love for you. So remember his word. Remember his word through song. Remember his word through memorization. Remember his word through meditation. Commit your mind to Jesus for the good of your soul. There's one more virtue which Jesus is cultivating with his speech. And this is the verse that 
drew my attention to this whole trail in the first place, John 16, 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This verse is in many ways a summary of everything that Jesus has said here in this upper room discourse. Jesus is sort of putting a bow on all of his teachings here. When Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that I mean you may have peace. He's not just talking about what he has said here in verses 25 to 33, this last little paragraph. Rather, Jesus is talking about everything that he has been saying in the upper room. Jesus is speaking for your peace. He's speaking for your belief. He's speaking for your joy. He's speaking for your love. He's speaking for your perseverance. He's speaking for your remembrance. And now he's speaking for your peace. It's not as though, as though this peace means absence of conflict in this world. Jesus knows he's not about to set up the kingdom. But just because you and I do not live in the kingdom does not mean that we cannot have peace. Our peace, as we saw last week, it's not a product of our experiences. It's not a product of our circumstances. Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation. Get ready to suffer. Get ready to be uncomfortable. Get ready for unpleasant confrontations with people. Where do you find peace? You find peace in Jesus. Take heart, he says, I have overcome the world. Victory in Jesus may not be our present experience. It may not be a part of this world that we live in yet, but it is reality. What does John say? This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Jesus is coming. You can have peace in this world. You can have peace in this world of conflict because Jesus has spoken to you a great and a precious promise. I have overcome the world, he says. Do you worry about the direction this nation is going? I have overcome the world. Do you worry about the future of your family? I have overcome the world. Don't worry about your job. Don't worry about whether or not you're going to have to either quit or compromise your faith. I have overcome the world, Jesus says. Jesus does not want you to be conflicted and worried and anxious in your life. He knows that tendency in your soul. He knows how your heart is so easily inclined towards worry and anxiety over every little thing that comes up in life. And so, what does Jesus do? He speaks to you. He gives you his words. He gives you his promise. He has overcome the world. So rejoice. Receive that promise and receive his peace. Believe in Jesus. You know, there's a great temptation to reduce the Christian life to a moral lifestyle. We imagine if someone is a good, we imagine if someone is a good Christian, if they, if they mow their lawn and they're good to their neighbors and they're a nice person to you. Perhaps even imagine that we're good Christians. 
because we have good thoughts about Jesus and we're an honest person. But what we see this morning is that Jesus is speaking for your virtue. Jesus has spoken. Throughout these four chapters, Jesus has spoken promise after promise, teaching after teaching. And he has spoken those things to produce his own virtue in you. He has spoken for your belief. He has spoken for your joy. He has spoken for your love. He has spoken for your perseverance. He has spoken for your remembrance. And he has spoken for your peace. It is these virtues that characterize the disciple of Jesus. Jesus is speaking to change your heart. Good thoughts about Jesus and honest living are no sign that you belong to Jesus. Belonging to Jesus begins by believing in him. Believing that his death was actually sufficient to pay the penalty you deserve for your sins. This is what Jesus has said. Belonging to Jesus means you are listening to Jesus' words and you're growing in these virtues. So do you hear his word this morning? Do you believe Jesus' words this morning? His words are in fact sufficient to work these virtues in your soul. If you believe them and if you receive them as true, This upper room discourse is for you, Christian. It is the hope for your soul. Jesus is working for your virtue. So listen to his word, abide in his word, and grow in virtue. Father, 